0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. I've been teaching middle schoolers, 7th and 8th graders, for 10 years now, and I can tell you that the same dynamic is at play in a middle school classroom. Always and never is easier than sometimes. And I bet if we took an informal survey of the room, which... Sorry, Justin, I'm not gonna ask people to vote. Uh, I bet the majority of us would feel the same way. We prefer the clarity of always and never. Doesn't mean we always obey it, but we prefer the clarity that always and never rules bring. Well, the passage that we're gonna look at today, if you're like me and you like always and never, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, I'm sorry. We don't have always and never. We've got a series of commands about one emotion, fear. And much to our dismay, Jesus is not going to tell us that we should never fear, just period, or we should always be afraid, just period. But rather, there are some things, some situations that we should fear, and there are some people, some situations we should not fear. And that's the main point of today's sermon. And to make it really clear, I had Kate put it on top of the bulletin for you as well, and we'll have it up here on the screens. One Mark of a mature follower of Jesus is that their fear is not eliminated altogether, but aimed appropriately. I'll say that again. One mark of a mature follower of Jesus is that their fear is not eliminated altogether, but is aimed appropriately. So our goal today with the help of the Holy Spirit is that we wanna look at this passage and seek to learn and understand when fear is the appropriate response and when fear is sin. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his help today. Heavenly Father, you are with us. These are your people, this is your word, and you have given us your spirit. May we exalt your son today and may your glory and your name be displayed as great and may your kingdom advance in us and through us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, amen. So first, Jesus tells us to fear being a hypocrite. Luke 12, one through three says, "'In the meantime, when so many thousands of people "'had gathered together that they were trampling "'one another, he began to say to his disciples first, "'Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, "'which is hypocrisy. "'Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed "'or hidden that will not be known. "'Therefore, what you have said in the dark "'shall be heard in light, "'and what you have whispered in private rooms "'shall be proclaimed on the housetops.'" Now, in Luke chapter 9 that we preached through a couple of months ago, Jesus begins his final march to Jerusalem from up north in Galilee. In this central portion of Luke, from Luke 9.51 all the way to Luke 19 when he arrives in Jerusalem, it records for us Jesus' teachings to his disciples as he is approaching the cross. As Justin taught us last week at the end of Luke 11, Jesus announces a series of woes, divine judgments against the Jewish religious leaders. And these Jewish religious leaders have responded not in repentance and faith, but rather with hate. And they have begun to form plots to have Jesus arrested. And eventually, as we know, he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. At the same time, as the the Pharisees and scribes are plotting to have Jesus killed, Jesus' popularity is surging. I mean, why not? The crowds think that he's the long-awaited Messiah, and to them, that means political liberation from the hated Roman oppressors, not to mention all of the miracles that Jesus is performing and the free bread that Jesus is able to give them. This guy is awesome. So Jesus is walking into Jerusalem with hatred swirling around him, but crowds of adoring people pressing in on him. And so Jesus knows that both of these forces, opposition and popularity, are dangerous to his followers. And so he teaches them first about the danger of being a hypocrite. Now we get that word that's translated in English as our, in our Bibles as hypocrite from the world of Greek theater. At this point in history, an actor would play a different character by means of putting on a mask. Now he'd obviously be himself behind the mask, but he would be showing an entirely different face to the world. And that's a pretty good picture of what hypocrisy is and why God hates it so much. Hypocrisy is deeply and profoundly dishonest. And we know that. We, we, none of us like being lied to and none of us like being accused of lying when we're telling the truth. We all know deep in our hearts that dishonesty and, and lying is a horrible thing. But that doesn't stop all of us from putting on the mask in different situations and pretending to be one thing when the reality is far different. From, it doesn't stop us from being hypocrites, in other words. And being surrounded by adoring crowds 2,000 years ago or today provides a particular tempting situation for hypocrisy to take root. And Jesus knows it's gonna be really easy for his disciples to begin to play a role, right? John the mighty, Andrew the zealous, when the adoring crowds are following them. And so in love, he issues a warning about hypocrisy. And the first warning he gives us is how subtle hypocrisy is. Leaven or or yeast is tiny. And if you look at the amount of flour and you look at the little eighth or quarter or maybe even one teaspoon of yeast, it doesn't seem possible that something so small could have an impact on something so large. And yet it does. A pinch of leaven in the right environment and given enough time will transform that mound of flour into something else entirely. Now, as bakers, we want that to happen, but Jesus knows hypocrisy in the hearts of his followers is going to be deadly. A pinch of dishonesty, a single moment of receiving credit that should be given to the Lord, and hypocrisy begins its work of transformation in our hearts And that's what happened to the Pharisees as a movement. Friends, they were not born, the movement of the Pharisees were not born as villains. They started out as something good. They started out as a group of men who were dedicated and zealous for obedience to the law of God. That's a good thing. But what started as a movement of men zealous for the law slowly over time transformed into that cup polishing committee that Justin taught us about last week. And that's what a little bit of hypocrisy can do in our hearts as well. The Pharisees were able to fool the crowds and we might be able to fool the people around us, but Jesus, God is not fooled by their act. And Jesus sees the actions of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. He sees that it flows out of a heart that doesn't love God, but rather loves men and prays for men. The Pharisees were, in other words, actors on a stage. They're receiving rapturous applause from the masses while God turns away in disgust. And so to keep his followers, and that, friends, is us, from making these same mistakes, Jesus gives us three weapons to fight against hypocrisy. One, fight hypocrisy by remembering that it doesn't work. As Jesus says in verses two and three of our passage, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops at just the right moment. God is going to march on stage. He is going to pull off the mask. He is going to dismantle the personas that hypocrites have worked to cultivate and they will be exposed to the world for what they really are. The tragedy, friends, of hypocrisy is that hypocrisy fools people whose opinions ultimately don't matter and brings us into opposition with the one whose opinion matters eternally. Hypocrisy doesn't work. Second, fight hypocrisy by seeking a better reward. A pastor once said that the hypocrite gets the reward he's after, the approval of the crowd, but that's all he gets. Brothers and sisters, aim higher. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a contrast between rewards to not only warn us from hypocrisy, but to call us into heart-born righteousness, heart love for God. He says in Matthew 6, verses five and six, and when you pray, and the same thing Jesus says about fasting and giving, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You must not. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, They have received their reward. Friends, your reward for hypocrisy lasts as long as the applause. And as soon as the last person stops clapping, your reward is over. So Jesus says, when you pray or give or do anything the Lord commands, you go into the room, you shut the door, you pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Friends, everybody in this room, everybody on this planet is a reward seeker. God made us that way. So the question we have as we sit here and as we walk out and go into our regular life, the question is not, am I going to seek a reward today? You are going to seek a reward. The question is, who are you gonna seek a reward from? And Jesus would tell us to seek the reward from the one who lasts forever and whose blessing knows no end. So fight hypocrisy by remembering it doesn't work. Fight hypocrisy by seeking a better reward. And third. Jesus tells us to fight hypocrisy by remembering who your father is. Friends, God chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. And he did it knowing better than we do how much of a sinner and a failure we would all be. We don't have to pretend. We have never had to pretend to earn the love of our father. His love is an unearned, undeserved gift. Now, some of us in this room, that may not have been our experience from our earthly fathers. Some of us in this room may have had earthly fathers who made it very clear that their love was a prize to be won, something to be earned. But that's not the case for our heavenly father. His love is not a prize that we have to win. It's a gift that we have to receive. So we receive it and we leave silly dress up games behind. Fear hypocrisy. So we should have a healthy fear of hypocrisy. But then Jesus, again, likely with the threats from the Pharisees in his mind, tells us who we shouldn't fear. Don't fear man. In verse four, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. Now, if we're being honest, the reason Jesus gives us for commanding us to not fear man isn't what we wish he would say. We wish he would say, don't fear people because I have put a force field around you. You're like a guy in Mario with the star. You cannot be hurt. Or we wish he would say, hey, don't fear people because if you obey me, people are gonna love you. That's not what he says. He says it's foolish to fear people because the worst thing they can do is kill you. And at that point, we'd all probably like to yell, that's what I'm afraid of, Jesus. I I think that's the point. But friends, there's just no other way to say it than this. Faithfully living for Jesus might get you killed. Voice of the Martyrs, an agency that supports persecuted Christians around the world, estimates that 1,000 people a month, 12,000 people a year died for following Jesus. And I'm not talking about in the Roman Empire. I'm talking about right now. This month, in September, 1,000 brothers and sisters are going to die because they follow Jesus. They died and are going to die surrounded by people who hate them. People probably laughing at them and mocking them as they kill them. But I promise you, they, they may have died eyes and ears full of hate, but they opened their eyes in heaven to see Jesus. He was there. He will be here for us. Jesus said to them, well done. And that's what we want. We want to hear, well done. Jesus went to the cross for us. And because he did that, our relationship with death has been changed forever, and that's his design. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. No matter who our enemy is, whether it's the government of North Korea or our boss at work, their hate cannot follow us beyond the grave. As Christians, we don't long for death. We're not looking to be martyred or tortured, but we do long for Jesus. And this this can seem like an impossible ambition to, to boldly walk into death for the name of Jesus, but it's not. Because the same spirit who dwelt in the brothers and sisters who died last month for Jesus, the same spirit who dwelt in the apostle Paul and he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the spirit that's in us. So if this seems impossible, if you're thinking about like, "Ah, I could never do this, then I wanna point you in two directions. One, ask for more faith. Ask for more faith to believe that God will be with you through the fire and for more faith to believe in the goodness of his reward. And second, if the thought of leaving this life fills you with just a paralyzing fear, ask God to show you, are there any unhealthy attachments to the things of this world that make death or losing your job or losing a treasured relationship seem like the worst possible outcome? Jesus is worth losing everything for, even your very life. There is something worse than death and it's dying without Jesus. So after telling us, fear hypocrisy, don't fear man, Jesus tells us someone that we should fear, fear God. After telling them not to fear men, Jesus says, but I will tell you, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This idea of fearing God probably makes many of us uncomfortable. And people, meaning well, they'll often talk about how, well, you know, fearing God's appropriate in the Old Testament, but living on this side of the cross, we no longer fear God. Perfect love, they say, drives out fear, and they're quoting there from 1 John. However, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 1, a book written by the same man who wrote Perfect Love Drives Out Fear. This is Revelation 1, 10 through 17. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell with his feet as though dead. John has just seen the risen Lord Jesus whether it's Moses, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, Daniel in the Old Testament, the disciples who witnessed Jesus's transfiguration in the book of Luke, or John here in Revelation, an encounter with the living God creates fear. Now, another tactic, again, assuming these folks are well-meaning, that somebody might use to soften the idea of fearing God, will be substituting the word fear for something else. They might say, like, well, You know, fear doesn't mean what you think it means. It just means respect, or it just means reverence. And friends, that won't do either. Again, when you look back at the passages that describe humans becoming face-to-face with God, they're um, they're experiencing something much more profound than respect. As is often the case, the reality that the Bible is pointing to can't just be summed up in one word. We actually need three And the first word that we need to think about what it means when the Bible says fear is fear. Lord willing, Grace and I are going to be joining her family in Breckenridge, Colorado, next summer. And hopefully at some point, uh, and I'm sure my father-in-law will be listening to this sermon later, so hopefully at some point, uh, Grace and I will get some time for the two of us to take a walk together. Uh, So let's imagine on this walk, we turn a corner and we see this. Now, that's a grizzly bear, and they look cute and cuddly, but they're terrifying and huge and have giant claws and teeth. What word do you think we would would best sum up what we're feeling if we're face-to-face with an angry bear? Fear, complete and utter fear. We're in the presence of a creature that can destroy us. Okay, so let's say somehow we we avoid the bear, and for some reason we continue our hike, you know, if you get free childcare, you've really got to take advantage of it. All right. We continue our hike and we turn a corner and we come face to face with now that's Dwayne Johnson. And I, you know, ladies, I'll just stand right here. Take it off the screen, Marco. I don't want to be a distraction, right? So what do we what do we feel? What do we feel now? Reverence. In addition to only being a touch smaller than the bear, Dwayne Johnson is rich and famous. He's one of the biggest celebrities on earth. Grace and I would be starstruck. And after becoming lifelong friends with D, that's what his friends call him, you guys probably don't know that, We, we continue on to the end of our hike where we're greeted with this sight. What will we feel? Awe. We would feel awe. The kind of awe where you can't even talk for a few minutes, which is hard for me. You just stand there and you just feel small in the very best way. So, friends, what should we feel in the presence of a God infinitely more powerful than a grizzly, infinitely more important than Dwayne Johnson, infinitely more beautiful than anything on earth? The word that the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors to use is fear. We must fear. God. Now, I know that in a crowd this size, any crowd of any size, it's likely that thinking of God as someone to fear stirs up all sorts of emotions in you. Some of us have very good reason to be cautious about the idea of, of fear. But for all of us, whether that makes you uncomfortable or not, I want you to consider Jesus. Jesus, who said that he was gentle and humble in heart, Jesus, who said he came to save you and give you rest. Now, friends, I don't want to suggest even for one second that Jesus is some sort of hero who comes down from heaven to to save you from the snarling bear that is the Father. That's That's not what the Bible teaches us at all. I want you to see how the gospel informs the way we think about fearing God. God is a holy God, and therefore he hates sin. Every sin that we commit is not just the the violation of some impersonal law. It is a personal attack against God himself. He hates it. He's not only holy, he's all powerful as well. In other words, God doesn't just hate sin. He has the right because he's the king of the universe and the ability because he's all powerful to do something about it. Now he could have chosen, the something could have been everybody who sins go to hell. And he would have been just and right to do that. But he sent his son instead. And Jesus went to the cross in our place. He bore the wrath of God that we should have faced. We should have been destroyed by the wrath of God. And because Jesus did that, for all those who place their faith in Jesus, something amazing has happened. God hasn't become any less fearsome but where we stand in relation to him has changed. For those who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, the bear isn't charging at us. We're his cubs. He fights for us, but he's still just as terrifying. For those who have confessed that they need a savior, God isn't any less reverential or important, but he has now set his affection on you. And he says, you are the apple of my eye. For those who've been born again, God is making us into the most beautiful thing that we can be holy like his son. The sad truth, friends, is that most people live with these truths reversed. We spend all of our time worrying about what people think about us or what people will do to us, and we completely disregard God. The one who can and will, friends, this is not an empty threat. He will destroy all those who disregard him. He will eternally destroy all those who treat God as if he's just a stuffed teddy bear and not the king of the universe. We must fear the Lord. And if this is new to you, let me give you just a couple of pointers. One, if you're a man in this room, sign up for the Bible study being led by Mr. Tyler Chapman and myself starting next week. We're gonna be studying the attributes of God and a great way for you to grow in the fear of the Lord is to grow in your knowledge of the Lord. If we know him more, we will both fear and love him to a much greater degree. And if I've not convinced you on this whole fearing thing, I don't want to convince you. I want God's word to convince you. So when you go home today, here'd be my second recommendation to you. When you go home today, I want you to go to BibleGateway.com. I think we put the link up here, but it's just those words, BibleGateway.com. And in the search bar, I want you to type in fear the Lord or the fear of the Lord. And I want you to see what God says about those who fear him. I want to just give you two verses, just a taste. The first is Psalm 103, verse 11. The psalmist writes, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And here's one more, Psalm 147, 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Fear the Lord, my friends. There is no limit to what God will do for those who fear him. I am gonna just go off script for a second. I warned Marco. So what about that verse in 1 John? If we're supposed to fear God, what was John talking about when he says perfect love dries out fear? Friends, the Bible does not contradict itself. It is the very breathed out word of God. It's perfect. The fear that has been driven out from us by the love of God is fear of condemnation. It's fear of being ignored, fear of being not provided for, fear of not being his son. That fear is gone forever. But this holy, reverential, knee-knocking fear that we should have when we approach God should not be taken away by the cross. It should be amplified by the cross. The second thing we might ask is, where does fear come from? And as I said, it comes from actually encountering the living God. Uh, I'm gonna tell y'all something that many of you with younger children who are in the know at Birmingham Zoo, you probably already know. Uh, there was a female lion at the Birmingham Zoo. Her name escapes me. Uh, and she was alone. And so the Birmingham Zoo said, we should get her a companion. Hey, babe, our, our uh, son Emmanuel's in here. <laughs> and we should get a companion for this uh, this female lion. And so they got a male lion named Josh. And they kept Josh and the female lion in separate enclosures. And they let them kind of get used to seeing and hearing and smelling each other. And one fateful day, they brought Josh and the female lion together and Josh killed her. So this is a male lion, terrifyingly huge, who has killed other lions. Now, my boys don't know that. And when we would go to the zoo, Josh would be pacing back and forth. I, their dad, I'm like looking like, do I see any cracks? Do I think he can climb over? Because like, I realized who I'm in the presence of. I have what I hope is a healthy respect for Josh and what he can do. My son Eli is banging on the glass, making face at Josh, singing kuna Matata <laughs> because he, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't fear Josh because he doesn't, he, we're seeing the same thing. We're hearing the same thing. He doesn't fear Josh because he doesn't know who he is. There are people in the Bible, think about the people of Israel, They leave Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. The presence of God, the smoke, the fire, the thunder, the earth is shaking. God's speaking. It's right there. And they're down there making an idol. They're seeing it with their eyes. They don't experience God in their heart. They don't fear him. They don't believe him. They don't obey him. And they're destroyed by him. We fear the Lord as we genuinely encounter him in his word. So fear the Lord, my friends, and grow in your fear of the Lord. That is how God wants to bless us. So fear being a hypocrite. Don't fear man, but fear God. And fourth, don't fear the lack of God's provision. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. If you don't fear God, even if you're a believer, but this idea of fearing God is something very strange to you, you will find it difficult, if not impossible, to trust in his ability to provide for you. If you're someone who struggles with doubting that the Lord is able to meet your needs, whatever those needs may be, I believe that this passage points us towards a solution. Cultivate a deeper fear of the Lord. Many of us, hoping to make God less fearsome, have shrunk him down to being a fun-sized God, the kind of God you can put on a funny T-shirt who's always down for a good time. And we've succeeded. We're no longer scared of God, but then we run into the problem. That God on our T-shirt doesn't exist. And he can't help us. He can't provide for you. He can't guide you. He can't redeem you. He could do nothing for you because he isn't real. The only God who can save is the God who exists, and the God who exists must be feared that God, the real God, the actual God, he's the God who promised to provide for you. He's the God who's never broken a promise and who's not going to start with us in this room. He's the God who's holy, so holy that he demands payment for sin and then pays it himself. If we cultivate big thoughts of God, we, like the apostle Paul, will be able to say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or to draw our last two points together, here's how Psalm 34, nine puts it. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. So don't fear God's provision, but we must fear denying Jesus and rejecting his spirit. Denying Jesus and rejecting his spirit. Verses eight, nine of our passage say, and I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Friends, this is no idle threat from Jesus. Jesus doesn't bluff. This is a test we must pass. Whether it's the pleasure that sin offers or the fear of persecution, we will all every day, and for some of us, for some brothers and sisters in the world, there will be one enormous test. But for all of us every day, we're all going to be tempted to deny Jesus with our words and our lifestyles. And if we do that on judgment day, we will be cast away from the presence of Jesus forever. Now, there's a tension here, and I don't want to remove it. I want to shine a light on it. How do we explain the seeming tension between passages like this and the beautiful truth that we cannot lose our salvation? I want you to think of it like this. The only faith that can save you is faith in the actual Jesus. And the actual Jesus gives you more pleasure than all the sin in the world. And the actual Jesus is worth losing everything you have in this world, even your life. If at the moment of testing, we flinch and we deny him, it may be, The Jesus we have faith in isn't the Jesus of the Bible, but the Jesus we've created for ourselves and idols can't save. Now, friends, we all are gonna deny Jesus in our life. We're all going to sin. And there is so much grace for sinners, provided they repent and return to the Lord. The night before Jesus was crucified, two of his disciples very publicly denied him. Peter repented, was forgiven, but Judas didn't repent and perished eternally. What's the difference between these two men? Prayer. Not their prayer, Jesus's prayer. After instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. At the end of the day, every born again believer will make it across the finish line because our great high priest makes intercession for us and his father loves to answer his prayers. It's Jesus's prayers that shows us why this is a test we cannot fail because our heavenly father answers the prayers of his beloved son. Now, after giving this warning, Jesus issues another warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, an action that has come to be known as the unforgivable sin. And every Christian's ears perk up. What? Unforgivable sin? Now, before I tell you what the unforgivable sin is, let me tell you what it's not. First, the unforgivable sin is not something that we do by accident. If you have had the experience of walking through your house at night and kicking your toe against a door jam, you likely said something you shouldn't have said, and you have committed a sin, I have committed a sin when I do that, but it's not unforgivable. You're not gonna blurt out the unforgivable sin in a moment of anger. And second, the unforgivable sin isn't something that a believer can do. Christians are by definition forgiven people. This is not an action that we can commit. So what is the unforgivable sin? It is so frequently rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in calling you to repentance that you harden your own heart and you reject God's offer of life. Friends, the Bible is clear. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of salvation. And if you continuously put off the Holy Spirit, I'll do it later, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it whatever that is. You are hardening your own heart to the point where you're no longer capable of humbling yourself before God and asking for mercy. And if you don't ask for mercy, you don't receive mercy. And that's why this action, which takes place over years, is truly unforgivable. Paul describes the outcome of this type of life in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, when he talks about liars whose consciences are seared, seared like a hamburger left over an open flame for hours, blackened and destroyed beyond repair. Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin when he hears the Pharisees Call the obvious act of God in casting out demons and healing. They say, Oh, that's the work of the devil. That's what it looks like. That's what it sounds like to harden your heart and to commit the unforgivable sin. To any in the room who are here considering Christianity, we're so glad you're here. But do not put off until tomorrow what you only may be able to do today. The offer of salvation is real, but the time is now. Finally, friends, Jesus tells us, don't fear the crucible. Jesus knows that the adoring roars of the crowd are not gonna last much longer. Soon his disciples are gonna face jeers and accusations as they're arrested and threatened with death for the sake of his name. So Jesus says in verse 11, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So not only is Jesus praying for you, for me, that our faith may not fail, but he's actually given us his spirit to ensure that we remain faithful. Acts 4 has one of my favorite pictures of this in all of scripture. Peter and John have been arrested for preaching Jesus. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, the very same group that had Jesus crucified a few months prior. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. And when they, the Sanhedrin, had set them, Peter and John, in their midst, they inquired, This, Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter, the coward, afraid of a servant girl, two months before this, is now preaching Christ, calling on the murderers of Jesus to repent at the risk of his own life because he's been filled with the Holy Spirit and he has been with Jesus. Same Peter, same murderous Sanhedrin. What's changed is that the Holy Spirit dwells in him. And that's the same spirit inside of us. So friends, as we close, I want you to know that time with Jesus wasn't just important for Peter. That's the key for all of us in this matter. The more my boys spent time with me this summer, the more they began to understand what I wanted from them. And that's gonna be true for us with Jesus. The more time we spend with him, the more we will be willing to take off our masks, the more we'll be willing to boldly face trials and afflictions, the more we'll be willing to fear the Lord and trust that he'll provide. And we'll know when the appropriate response is fear and when fear would be sinful. So may we spur one another on to spend time with our Lord so that we can grow in fear and faith together.